All right, welcome. This is the Mark series part 45, and we're actually just in Mark 12, but I think all the hours have been well worth it, and we're about to dig into another one. This is the parable of the vineyard. It's probably Jesus's most backhanded um, of his parables, and I mean because the people he's telling the parable to, well, you'll see, you'll see. This is um, a very in-your-face way that Jesus handles these leaders. And I want us to understand it, understand how it connects to the Old Testament, to Isaiah 5 in particular. I think that's significant. But also, probably the most important part is going to be application into our lives. And that's the thing that's that's been more heavy on my heart as I'm preparing this and thinking about this, that really the application of not making the same mistake that these guys are making is huge. And I hope that I can communicate that well today. So here we are in Mark chapter 12. And admittedly, um, today's uh, study is not as clickbait worthy as some of the more recent ones have been, but um, we want Mark, not Matthew. <clears throat> but this is ultimately about just studying and understanding the, the, the passage of scripture before us, understanding it in the setting of Mark altogether, understanding it in the context of the whole Bible, and then applying it into our lives so we can get the, uh, the brain and the heart of the text. So here we are, Mark chapter 12, verse 1 where Jesus tells the parable of the vine growers or the parable of the vineyard. Um, you know, Jesus's parables didn't come with names. And so we don't have names that he he gave us. Well, in some cases, he did, but not in this case. Here it just says he began to speak to them in parables. And I'm going to read the whole parable to you. And then we're going to give a, a summary view, like a big overview of what it is, what it means. And then we're going to get into the details where I think a lot of the gold nuggets are. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey, thus setting the stage for the rest of the story. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, these are the leaders Jesus speaks to, were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. <clears throat> okay, so this is, this is the, sets the stage. Jesus' parable, um, in, in short, I'm going to give you the summary, the overview right now. And it should be pretty obvious, right? Jesus is, is currently encountering the Sanhedrin or delegates from the Sanhedrin. These are the leadership of the Jews, the highest court, the highest Jewish court that they had currently in the land. And they come and they, they want to get in Jesus's face. They want to challenge his authority. They want to get, you know, cause him trouble because he caused trouble in the temple recently when he overturned the tables and drove people out. And so they want to cause him trouble. They try to get him with a trap question, which he sort of jukes or and somebody asked in the in the comments uh, what juke means. Juke is a, is like a football term. It means like when you when you evade someone's tackle. That's kind of well, at least that's the context I usually hear it in. But he kind of evades their tackle, the track the trap question very cleverly. Well, then he gives them a parable that does kind of the same thing. But it's very clear the parable is about them. It's directed to them, right? The man who plants the vineyard, this is God. God plants the vineyard. It's God who blesses the vineyard Israel with wonderful land and protection and and all the good things that God gave to Israel. He's the one who took Israel from Egypt and turned them into a nation and gave them a place. So he plants the vineyard. The tenants, they're the leaders of Israel. And this is this is the thing. Jesus focuses on the leadership in this passage. He's focused on the leaders of Israel. The kings, the priests, the Sanhedrin, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, all these types of people. Now, when the man, the man who owns the vineyard, in this case, it's picturing God, sends servants to get some of the fruit from the tenants. This is God sending the prophets 
the prophets in the Old Testament times. He's sending prophets and, the, and they're trying to call the people of Israel back to obedience to God, to serving God. That's the fruit he wants to see in their lives. And what happens? The leaders reject the prophets. And this is the shocking thing as you read the Old Testament. <clears throat> you can at the same time fall in love with Israel because of God's love for Israel. And you can really despise them because of their constant rebellion against God. Right? And, and it comes from the leadership. The, it's the kings that persecute. It's the, the rulers of Israel that come against the prophets of God. When these, these should have been the ones leading the way in repentance. Finally, the man, in this case, God sends his son. Right? He sent prophets. He sent a people. Now he sends his son to Israel. And then the focus is going to be on the tenants themselves. By the way, this speaks to who Jesus is. He's not just a prophet. He is the son of God. He is the unique um, son of God. Then the focus changes to the tenants, right? The tenants are the bad guys. And this is where Jesus says, what's the landowner going to do? What is God going to do? He's going to kill you leaders and replace you with others. That is, that is the, it's, I mean, talk about backhanded. He's telling the parable to the people who were going to be replaced. And he's saying, God's judgment's going to come upon you because you've been rejecting his prophets historically. And now you're rejecting his son. But he says it in a way that makes it hard to get him in trouble because it's just a parable, right? You have to interpret it to understand it. So here's um, a couple preliminary things to mention as we're, as we're getting into this, as we go back over it now in detail to understand it more carefully. Jesus knows exactly who he is, right? Jesus knows that he is, he is not just a messenger of God, although he is bringing a message and he is a messenger, but he's not merely a messenger. He is God the Son. He is the Son of God who has come to bring the message himself. He's uniquely different than any prophet, anyone else who came. He's greater than Moses. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than Adam. He's greater than all of the above. And we'll get into a little bit more about that later. And um, what what happens next, Jesus straight up predicts, they're going to they're going to reject the son. You know, he's going to be he's going to be killed. He's going to be cast out of the vineyard, so to speak. So Jesus is crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. And then the next thing that happens is the tenants are replaced and the stone is set up, right? The cornerstone. Jesus is still set up. So he gets vindicated. He resurrects. He still becomes the center of the work of God in, in, the, in the universe. And it's the leaders who are replaced because they rejected him. And people sometimes don't realize that when they accept or reject Christ, they're making a decision on whether they will be accepted or rejected by God. That this is not really, you know, whether Jesus is Lord isn't up to you. It's whether you submit to his lordship. That's the decision that we have to make. So here are some details. Let's get into it now again. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And we're going to go through and give you guys some background, uh, some, some nuances, some interesting things that we get in the text. This is the kind of stuff you get, not just by casual reading, but by spending the time studying. So here we go. Mark 12, 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. The first thing you'll notice is that the word parables is in plural here, yet in Mark, there's only one parable given. Now, there's there's two possible explanations for this, uh, two good, good explanations. Uh, one is, um, according to R.T. France, who it's one commentary I like to read when I'm studying Mark. Uh, R.T. France's commentary suggests that the word parables there is not is not functioning as a noun, but as an adverb. And basically, it means that the plural nature of the word uh, parabole, it's, it's, it's plural there. It's not important. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. It's not meaning that there's multiple parables. It's more about the quality of what Jesus is saying and not how many of them he's giving. That's one explanation. Another would just be that Jesus did speak to them multiple parables and Mark just records one. I think that's probably, if you don't know any Greek, that's probably where you're going to go with that and say, yeah, that makes sense. And in parallel passages, uh, in Matthew, I believe, uh, there are multiple parables. It's not just the vine growers. There's other parables as well in this in this setting, in this in this exact time. So that's quite possible. Uh, notice what the, the man uh, does. He, he plants a vineyard, puts a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press, and then built a tower. So these are like real specific things that the that the man does, in this case, God does for Israel. And I'll just say the audience knows, Jesus' audience, they know exactly what Jesus is doing here. And you may, you may miss it. He's referencing Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, all these same elements are there. These elements are uh, really 
they're not just present in Isaiah 5, but Isaiah 5 gives us like a parallel moment in the history of Israel where God is saying, I've been sending you, you know, help and blessings and all these things and you reject me and now judgment is coming. And here Jesus is saying, I'm the final voice of God to reach out to your generation and you're rejecting me. Now judgment is coming. And he's speaking to the leaders here, not specifically just all of Israel, but I'll get back to that in a minute. So Isaiah 5, let's read through this and see this is what's in the head of the Jewish person or the person who knows the Old Testament when they hear Jesus's parable of the vineyard or of the vine growers. Here it is. Let me sing now for my beloved. Now this is Isaiah speaking and the, the well-beloved here is God. God is the well-beloved. You want to remember that too. That's interesting later on. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And also, he hewed out a wine vat in it. Okay, these are all the same elements that Jesus is tapping into. Right? So this is clearly, they know. The, the, the guy planting the vineyard is God. The vineyard is, is ultimately Israel. And all these elements are connecting it to Isaiah in particular. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, and here's the result. Notice this, by the way. In, in the Isaiah passage... There's no, there's no mention of, of uh, tenants. There's no mention of renting it out. It's, it's, it's a different focus here. So Jesus is tapping into Isaiah, but he's not just repeating it. He's giving a different focus because it's a different situation. Um, so he expected good fruit. It only got bad fruit. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Now, now it switches to first person. God is speaking about his vineyard, him and Israel. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Now, these are all Symbolic things about the destruction of the walls of the city, right? Not just the hedge of, around a vineyard, but the walls of the city, um, making them fruitless. It's, it's going to just destroy the city is the idea. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. And so this is totally connected to what Jesus is doing. Um, there, and there's even more connections. So not only do we have the clear connection between Jesus and them, and, and notice these two moments. Like if you were to take, let me try to, hopefully I can explain this well. Let's say that I took the, the events around Jesus's life. So Jesus shows up as the ultimate messenger of God. He is rejected by the people and the leaders in particular of Israel. I mean, Jews received him, right? All the early church was initially Jewish. And so it's the leaders that rejected him in particular. He's rejected. And then judgment comes. The temple is destroyed. Now, if you could take that and superimpose it onto Isaiah's time, it's the same. Isaiah comes as a messenger of God. The people don't listen. They reject him. The leaders reject the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the leaders reject him. And then the destruction of the temple takes place. And so by quoting and tapping into that same moment in the past, Jesus is showing this is happening again. Except now it's more extreme because I'm the son, not just a prophet. And so that's a pretty uh, stark image of what's happening here. Pretty, as I said, backhanded is probably an understatement for how extreme this, this parable is. Now, the Isaiah passage um, in the mind of the people of the day was very likely connected to the destruction of the temple in particular. So they would read about it. They read and they saw that it talks about Israel's going to suffer. Judah's going to suffer. But they connected it specifically to the temple destruction. And this makes sense because the temple is like the heart and soul of the nation. And when that was destroyed, it was like the symbol of the ultimate destruction. Now, this is actually seen. We have something called a Targum, the Targum Isaiah. This comes from 30 BC. Now, this is not scripture. Okay, a Targum is not scripture. Targum's kind of like, okay, so what, what I have here is like a Bible that's a translation. Okay, so there's Greek and Hebrew and stuff, Aramaic, and it's translated to English. Targum's not that. Although it will be presented in other languages, um, there may involve translation. It's a lot more than that. It's not exactly even a paraphrase. It's more like a very loose paraphrase with interpretations. So when you read a Targum, you're not reading the, the original. You're kind of reading someone's commentary mixed into the text. Right? This is, to me, this is a very bad way of, of translating the Bible because people can't tell what scripture says versus what you're commenting on. 
and then they can't make decisions about whether or not you're accurate. But at any rate, this was like a thing that they did back then, right? They had targums, okay? So there's a targum called Targum Isaiah from 30 BC. That's 60 years before the events that we're reading about in the Gospel of Mark right now. All that to say, this targum, uh, it interprets Isaiah 5.2 and verse 5 as saying that this is God threatening to destroy the sanctuaries of Israel, specifically the temple. So they, they, they thought in Isaiah 5 that this was about the temple. Um, you can actually add support from the Talmud. So go to after the time of Christ. Now we have the Talmud. And the Talmud, it records in two places that the tower of Isaiah's vineyard song of Isaiah 5, the tower is identified as the temple. And the wine vat that he dug out is the altar. And so they're looking at the destruction of these things as the destruction of the temple. It, it was concluded, I quote here uh, Craig Evans, he says, it was concluded that the prophet's utterance was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 586 BCE. Although this Jewish interpretation is preserved in admittedly late post-New Testament sources, the similar usage and context in Mark suggests that this interpretation is at least as old as the first century and that the evangelist Mark was aware of it. Bottom line, can translate all that for you in case I lost anybody. <laughs> Bottom line is that this uh, parable of the vineyard is clearly connected to Isaiah's vineyard song that he, that he sings of his beloved of God and his vineyard. And that this thing is about the destruction of the temple in the minds of the people. And they know what Jesus means when he talks about how judgment's going to come next upon them. This is very much like Jesus is here with a parable, right? So he won't get in trouble yet. Now he's going to get crucified. He gets himself crucified in a sense, but he's waiting because it needs to be at the right time. Here he tells the parable, instead of saying, uh, God's going to destroy you, kill you guys, and replace you, he says it as a parable. This avoids him being crucified before he's able to like have the Last Supper and things like that. Now let's talk a little bit about history. Um, the, the first century time was different than like BC during Isaiah's time. And the, the parable itself reflects that. So the parable talks about a landowner who's like an absentee landowner. He rents the vineyard out to other people. He digs it and does all the work. And he, then they're supposed to control it, take care of it. And then he's going to send people later to gather fruit. So interestingly enough, this was a very common practice in Israel, especially in Galilee. In the area of Galilee, there were a lot of absentee landowners who were renting their land out. And the, the vine growers would grow the land. And generally, they had to hand over 25 to 50% of the produce that they received from the land. So they could keep some from themselves. And they had to hand over some to the owner. The vineyard makes, the journey, excuse me, makes sense where the landowner plants the vineyard, hires the people in Jesus's parable, and then goes on a journey. This makes sense because it was about four years from the time you planted the vineyard until you actually received a real, you know, full crop of fruit. So he goes away for a long season. He's waiting. There's a delay. And so that would be putting uh, Israel in the land and blessing them with the law and protections and all this stuff. And then God's waiting for them to like obey. <laughs> and so, yeah, really interesting stuff. Uh, it does connect historically to Galilee in particular, which I like those little, little check mark. It's, oh, yeah, the gospels are historical again. All those little moments are uh, special to me. All right. In verse two, let's go back over to uh, Mark 12, verse two. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. Again, 25 to 50% was typical back then. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. Now, some people want to take these descriptions and they want to identify them with specific prophets. It's, it seems clear and obvious that this is about messengers of God, prophets of God. And some people want to connect it to specific ones. Like, which one was the beaten one? What was the first prophet of God you know, to Israel? And were they beaten? What about the one that was given a head wound and treated shamefully? Um, I don't see a connection to specific prophets. We're often not told a lot of what happened to the prophets. I mean, it may be that the first prophet God sent to Israel was, was beaten. Um, that's possible. I really... I don't know. I, I don't see it historically. And I don't know that that's the point. I think the point is that they mistreated the messengers of, of God. That's the point. Now, in their culture, they understand. Sometimes we read these things and we, we, we forget to, to remember that these, these things really happened like 
in real communities with real people in real situations. Imagine this landowner who has a lot more power even than landowners say in the US, um, he hires these people and he then sends his messengers as part of their business agreement. And instead of paying him what they owe him, they beat the messengers, they hurt the messengers and they even kill several of them. He just keeps sending messengers. Now, at any point, the guy after the first messenger could have just brought down the wrath of the government upon them, but he didn't. Instead, he just sent another messenger and another messenger. And so we see this long-suffering God amidst a rebellious and wicked people as he's reaching out and reaching out and reaching out. And this is, of course, how he is with us individually. He's just long-suffering, waiting for us to finally repent. But we shouldn't take that long-suffering to think that that means judgment is never coming Instead, it just means that God is giving you more time. So I don't have a specific prophet, but I will point this out. The thrust of this is that there's a lot of prophets that God sends. And it's not just that the people reject them. Jesus's parable is different than Isaiah 5 in this exact way. Isaiah 5 is about the people just not responding to the work of God and the word of God. Jesus's parable is about the leaders rejecting the messengers of God. That's a different focus. And I, I want to focus on that for a second. So I've talked about this before, even in the Mark series, but this, um, this is consistent in the Old Testament. We see that it's actually the leadership of Israel. It's not just the people, it's the leaders of Israel who are persecuting the messengers of God over and over again. So I'm going to give you some examples I don't think I've given. I've given some, but there's so many examples to pick from. I can give some other ones. Elijah, you guys remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? This is like, maybe it's guys in particular that really love the Mount Carmel scene because it's like Elijah's outnumbered by these wicked false prophets. And then, you know, God shows himself true. Isaiah, or Elijah, excuse me, he actually mocks these prophets of Baal. And he says to them like, why isn't your God answering? Maybe he's in the bathroom. And he, I mean, he actually says that, um, you know, in, in a, in a Hebrew fashion, <laughs> at any rate, people like this passage, but this is like actually kind of like the formula for revival for the nation, because they've realized these false prophets are false. And then they realize that God who answers by fire and he burns the sacrifice that that judgment could come on them. So they start turning their hearts towards God, or at least that's what Elijah thinks is going to happen. So Elijah comes down off this major mountaintop experience and he's like, wow, literally mountaintop. Um, and, and he's just like, oh, wow, like this is going to be so great. God's, God's working. The next thing he hears is a message from Jezebel, who, let's face it, she's the king of Israel at that point, because Ahab is not really running things. She is. And, he, and he's, he's a loser anyhow. But, but Jezebel's just wicked. She sends a message to Elijah. I'm going to kill you. This is a leader. This is, this is the queen of Israel. She should be saying, Elijah, we've been so wrong. Come into the courts. Teach us the ways of God. I, I want to lead the, the nation in repentance. Instead, she threatens to kill him. Because the leaders of Israel so often are the ones who are persecuting um, the people, the messengers of God. David, remember David? He's revealed as the anointed of God. And Saul sees him. Remember, Saul's nobody. Saul, God calls Saul, makes him king. He doesn't have any lineage. He has no claim to anything. God just makes him king. And then God shows Saul too, that David's going to be the next king, that David's been anointed and that God is going to use him. And Saul knows that David has, he's run the, the army of Israel. He's led them in victory. He's also blessed Saul personally as he's played music and basically where worship music has helped Saul through hard spiritual warfare times. And yet Saul doesn't care. When he realizes David's the next anointed, he takes his spear and he tries to kill the man while he's playing worship music for Saul to try to feel better. It's the leaders of Israel that so often persecute the messengers of God to Israel. Gideon, right? Remember Gideon? He destroys his father's altar. He breaks down all the, the, the false images that are there. It's his dad's altar, right? And there the people come out and they start a riot against Gideon. And they say, bring out your son to his dad. They say, bring out your son that he may die. Not... Gideon, wow, you know, God's, God's hearing us again. We need to cleanse our lives and get our hearts right with the Lord because he's going to judge our land or he'll deliver us from the judgment we're experiencing. Instead, nope, they want to kill him. Then Gideon, he takes 300 guys and by the power of God and, and, the, and the, the genius of God because of the way he does it with all the things. He got a, there's a ring of guys and the trumpets and the, and the 
torches and stuff. Anyway, it's brilliant what, what happens there. He has this great victory over the enemy. And on his way back, with only 300 guys going over against like 100,000 plus other guys, he comes and the people of Ephraim meet him there. And they don't want to give him credit. They want to fight Gideon now. They want to fight him now. You've killed our oppressors, but you know what? We didn't get credit. We want credit. And we're upset that you didn't involve us in this great victory. Now, they didn't do anything to help him before the, before the thing happened. But but it's the, it's the leaders here who are coming against him. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet, right? You read the book of Jeremiah. He actually writes out an early version of his prophecies. And he gives them to the king of Israel. or Judah, in particular, the southern kingdom. Because they're split at this point. And there he gives them the prophecies. And the king cuts them up and throws them into the fire. The king of Judah cuts them up and throws them into the fire because it's the leaders of Israel who so often are persecuting the prophets of God. This is huge. Now, if you're like, well, how do we have Jeremiah? Well, like he wrote more guys, like he wrote more stuff. <laughs> At any rate, um, Isaiah, same thing. Ezekiel, same thing. Over and over and over again, it's the messenger of God that's persecuted, not just by anybody, but by the leaders of Israel. Crazy. In Jeremiah 7, verse 25 and 26, God summarizes it this way. And if we see that there's a theme throughout scripture, often what we see with these themes, here's some Christology in your bibliology stuff. What we see is there's this theme, this recurring thing that happens in scripture, and then it, it comes to its pinnacle in the life of Christ. And that's what we're seeing. So here's a recurring thing. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you, all my servants, the prophets, Remember, Jesus calls them servants or slaves, the people that God sends in the parable. Daily rising early and sending them, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. This is it. He, he sends you his prophets over and over again. You don't listen. You just, you reject him. You stiffen your neck. It's a consistent theme. And the themes are basically this. And here we can apply it to our lives a bit right here is that the reason why the leaders of Israel so often rebel against the prophets is because they want power over their own kingdom and their own lives, and they don't want to yield to God, but they want God's approval, right? They want God's help, and they want God's support, but they do not want his control in their lives, and that applies pretty easily. They also want credit. They want to be able to say that they did it by their own power, by their own skill, by their own ingenuity, and they want credit. And this goes, this kicks against the gospel, which gives me zero credit. All I have credit for is my condemnation. Jesus has credit for my salvation. And they also want to avoid suffering. Sometimes the prophets are just rejected simply because they have bad news. Uh, one of the prophets, the king said of him, I hate him because he only ever says bad stuff about me. <laughs> never, never stopped to ask if this stuff was true. And, and that's, that's the reality. We, we don't like the suffering side of things. We don't like the, the decision between sin and God that we have to make. And we'll experience the same things today as we preach the gospel, people rejecting it because they want control of their lives, people rejecting it because it doesn't give them anything to boast of in the gospel, people rejecting it because it doesn't offer um, purely good news. It has the bad news of sin, the bad news that you need to repent and you need to trust in Christ and your life needs to change. And these things are not pleasant for people to hear. Ironically, though, I think most people would realize that it's just true if they just stopped and reflected on it for a moment. Of course, my life should be different. Unless their conscience is incredibly seared. Most of us are just aware that stuff in our lives isn't perfect. And, and by saying not perfect, I mean, that maybe that's kind of like a euphemism to soften the blow. There's things that we do that are bad. There's ways that we are that are wrong. And we do need people of God to tell other people about these things in a loving and gracious way, in a humble way, but to be that voice. So this is going to then lead me to another greater human issue, a greater human issue. And this is where I think some of the application comes in. Probably the biggest point of application for today, in my opinion. In the, in the, um, in the rebukes of Jesus to the leaders of Israel, He realizes that they know their fathers persecuted the prophets, but they also don't think this applies to them. Okay, maybe my parents and my parents' parents' parents had all these sin issues, but I don't. I have overcome. I'm not like them. And this is, this is what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. 
why what's wrong with this like the prophets are great so okay let, let's say isaiah is killed persecuted by the leaders of israel and then later leaders of israel build a beautiful tomb for isaiah that's what he's pointing out he's like you're adorning the tomb of the prophets right but yet the, the living prophets they're rejecting okay the, the past they're like i would have done so much better in the past but in the present they're rejecting god and they say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves. You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Here's the application. Um, sometimes we are incredibly good critics of the past. Like I look at, I look at the past, I look at the Holocaust, and I'm like, no-brainer. I would definitely be on the right side if I was alive during the Holocaust. We, we look at uh, the issue of slavery that was going on in the past, and we think, I would definitely be on the, on the right side on the topic of slavery had, had it been, you know, like pre-Civil War times in the U.S. I would, have been, I would have been part of the Underground Railroad, I'm sure of it. We're really good critics of others, of our past, of our parents. We're, I mean, we're, sometimes we're amazing critics of our parents. Man, I could tell you a list of flaws of my family going back to every single little thing. But we're sometimes utterly blind to our own issues. And this is the thing that I think Jesus constantly hammers on when he says things like, get the plank out of your own eye first. It's, it's just to realize, look, when I see my parents, I shouldn't think, I'm not like them. Or I see humans in the past. I would never be like them. I should think, I'm from them. Like, they produced me. The, the wickedness of humans in the past should be a red flag that I am fully capable of all of the same horrors that they did. This is reality. I can, can fall into any grievous sin and wickedness known to man. And my opinion of my own integrity will not protect me one bit because they all thought they were doing the right thing at the time. When people were supporting slavery, they thought they were supporting something wonderful. They thought they had good justifications. You could actually go back and read some of their arguments they would give, and you're like, oh, well, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it that way. You know, when, when the Holocaust is going on, I mean, there's, there's video of the Germans uh, um, who, after the Holocaust, as part of the whole deal, you know, the whole peace deal and everything, they required the Germans to go and visit some of the places like Auschwitz. And you actually have video of them heading on their way into Auschwitz and they've got, they're laughing. They don't, see, they really are so desensitized that they don't realize what was going on in their own land in many cases. And so they come in, they're laughing, they're joking, they're very lighthearted. And then they see the conditions of these concentration camps and the, the things that were done there. And then they walk out and they're crying. And all of a sudden they realize that wicked sin is not just a reality of the ancient past. It's going on right now. And right now in our day-to-day, -day, we have it with the issues of abortion. We have it with the issues of pornography. We have it with the issues of, of pride and self-love and rebellion against, against right authorities in our lives, against, against God himself, seriously compromised Christianity, where it's, like, it's almost like some evangelists are just like begging people to just you know, believe in Jesus, but don't worry, you don't have to change nothing about your life as if that was the message <laughs> of, of real faith in Christ. And we're, we're just, we're living in wicked times. We've always been in wicked times. Every generation has been wicked times. And here's, here's the, the thing. I need to look at my life with the kind of critical clarity that I look backwards into history with. I need to be able to see my own scenario today as if I was looking at it from heaven, from eternity. And I look back and I go, yeah, there's issues. Yeah, I need to deal with these. I need to, because this is what they were blind to. These leaders, they, were, they would go visit the tomb of Isaiah and talk about how wonderful he was and how they never would have rejected him. And then they're gonna go plot how to crucify Christ. Do I look at my parents and think, well, at least I'm not like them. And yet in a generation, my kids will look at me and say, well, at least I'm not like him. And we'll just keep doing it over and over because identifying the sins of others has always been a great way of ignoring our own. And man, I think this is the application. All right, back to Mark chapter 12, verse 6. Jesus says, um, here, let me get us there. Did you get the application? It's that it's, I'm not going to tell you how to apply it to your life, except that you look without blinders at your own heart, at your own life. 
and be really honest. And, you know, there's going to come a day where, like, say, when you're 70, 80, you know, if, if you live that long, if the Lord tarries, and you're going to look back at your life and you're going to have a different view of your life because you're no longer going to be looking to defend yourself as much. At least a lot of us will look back and just be like, and that's what I did. And that's the life I chose. And those are the compromises I allowed. And you're going to be really clinging to the grace of Christ potentially at that point, which that's a good thing to cling to. But why not look at it like that now? Look at it now with that perspective. Not, in, not even in 20 or 30 years, how will I feel about today, but rather from eternity, how will I feel about today? 12.6, Jesus goes on and says, He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. They will respect my son. Um, now, one of the things I get in this verse is I notice that it's, um, he has one more to send, and he sends last of all the son. And it occurred to me that some might use this, um, and, and, and it occurred to me it could possibly be legitimately used, so I wanted to consider it, as like a sort of case that there are no more prophets after Jesus or no more messengers of God after Jesus. Um, I think that this is um, probably not the focus of Mark 12, 6. And one of the reasons is because in Luke, Jesus predicts future-wise that he will send prophets and apostles to the people. So the Son sends more after the Son comes. So I don't, now, I don't think we have like modern-day apostles like that. And that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. Um, I'm able to, to take a verse and say, this verse shouldn't be used for that, even though I would probably argue against modern-day apostles the way that we have some suggesting we have them now. I, I mean, just think of missionaries as the closest thing we've got to that. But in um, Mark 12, 6, the son comes last. The son is finally sent. And I think the, the reason the, that it's emphasized that the son finally comes, the last of all, is that it's before judgment comes on the leaders. So the leaders of Israel are given prophet, 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 prophet. They reject them. Finally, they're given the son. They reject and kill him. Then judgment comes and those leaders are replaced. Remember, Jesus' emphasis is not in this parable. It's not on the temple, actually, although it includes that. The emphasis is on the leaders. They're going to be replaced. This is the final messenger that will decide the judgment that comes upon the leadership of Israel. That's the thing. Now, there's a wider application because your response to Jesus is your final answer to God. And you say yes to Christ. You say no to Christ. This is your final answer, you know, for eternity before God. Now, the father says, the, you know, they will, they will respect my son. That's in verse 6 of Mark 12. They'll respect my son. And I don't think this is because the father actually thinks they will. I, I think this is just a parable, right? It's just a made-up story to draw an illustration out. I think the point of him saying they will respect my son is to draw attention to the extremity of who Jesus is. Like, it's crazy that they killed the messengers. But oh my goodness, they killed his son? Are you insane? Are you trying to bring judgment down upon yourself? You know, because the way you treat the son is the way you treat the father. And Jesus says this in John 5. You should honor the Son even as you honor the Father. In the same way that you honor the Father, you, honor, you should honor the Son. Or you're not honoring the Father. That's the idea. Jesus then, theologically, he is greater than every prophet that came before. Their slaves, he's the Son. Their slaves, he's the Son. And this shows, in this parable, shows God's love for the people of Israel, even the leaders of Israel, even the Pharisees and Sadducees and, and, and the hypocrites. He loves them because instead of just punishing them, he sends his son. He, he raises the stakes of their rebellion and says, if you'll, if you'll even rebel against my son who I love, who I will put at great harm's risk, I, I'm gonna, if you're going to rebel against him, fine, that's it. But I'm going to extend every opportunity for you to repent. And I think that that's a beautiful thing, showing the love that God has. He's not just the landowner. He actually loves these people. Then there's that beloved son thing going on. And here's a subtle uh, theological point. So in Mark 12, Jesus' parable, in Isaiah 5, um, the word beloved is used in both. Just like the word vat and, and wine press and, and hedge or wall, like all these things are used. But the word beloved is also used, but in a different way. So in Isaiah, Isaiah 5, the beloved is, is God. I will sing a song of my beloved and his vineyard. My beloved planted a vineyard, right? That, that's God. But in Mark, in Mark 12, in Jesus' parable, the beloved is the son. And I think there's like a subtle theological connection that's right there, which is very consistent with Mark, you know, the gospel of Mark in general, this subtle theology. There's an identity connection between the father and the son. 
and they're both the, the beloved. And I think that that's beautiful. So Jesus is the son of God. And um, yeah, verse seven, let's continue. Let's continue plowing through here. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So we get the plot. Here's the plot of the vine growers. They're like, we're going to take him. We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him out of the vineyard. That's just like what happened to Jesus. They seize him. They, they, they crucify him outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so throwing him out of the vineyard means we're rejecting your place in your vineyard. And that's exactly what the crucifixion is. And the, um, the thing to notice here is the motive. The motive they have is the same motive people have ultimately for rejecting Christ. We want to kill him so the inheritance will be ours. There's something we want. We want to control. We want to have ownership of our lives or or our nation or our religious denomination or something. We want to have control over it. So we're rejecting the control of God that's ultimately manifested in the Lordship of Christ. We're going to reject that so we can control it instead. Now, in the end, they're going to lose all control, right? If they had submitted to Christ, they would maintain their position. They would maintain their offices and they would serve God in those things. They would actually have the thing they want if they had just yielded to Christ. And that's the case for us as well. You know, what, what is it to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? You end up losing everything anyway. Um, so they, then in uh, verse, let's see, verse 9. Verse 9. What will the, the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now, in I think it's Matthew um, it's the crowd that supplies the answer. Jesus says, what will the, the owner of the vineyard do? And the crowd answers, oh, he's going to come and destroy them and give the vineyard to others. And the crowd adds, I think, those miserable vine growers. And, um, uh, and, and, it, and it could be all of the above. I mean, Jesus, it could be that it's a paraphrase. It's not a perfect direct quote. Yes, even though we have red letters, doesn't mean that we're always quoting word for word everything Jesus said. It means we're telling you what he said in a more broad sense. That's appropriate. Um, so it could be that, or it could be that Jesus asked the question, they answered it, and he and he reified it. He he reaffirmed it back to them. Um, all of those are perfectly fine options. And the point is, it's the vine growers that are the focus, right? It's the leaders that are going to be kicked out. It's them that are going to be replaced. And then he goes on and says in verse ten and eleven, "Have you not even read this scripture?" And this is brilliant. This is Psalm one eighteen. This is the very passage they quoted to Jesus as he was entering into Jerusalem, which prophesies not only the Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord, all that, but also it prophesies that the leaders of Israel will reject this guy and that God's going to set him up anyways. And so the whole thing from, from, the, from the moment, think of this, back into the Old Testament times when King David is writing Psalms, when, when the, authors, uh, the authors, plural, of the Psalms are writing, God is laying out blueprints for what Christ will do. He shows up and there he is on the week when he'll be betrayed. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey symbolic of his servant, of his servanthood coming in and they're crying Hosanna, but they still don't understand what he's really coming to do to die for their sin. And in that same Psalm that they're quoting to him is incorporated a prediction of the, of the leaders rejecting him and him having victory anyways. And what does he do? He quotes that Psalm back to them now. Which does a few things. It affirms again that he, he really meant to be presenting himself as king to the people of Israel. He thinks he's the cornerstone <laughs> and he knows they're the builders and they're rejecting him. And he's going to, this is so backhanded. He's like, Psh! and yet you can't really use it in court because it's, because it's, he just quoted a text, right? <laughs> he didn't really say it as plainly as they would be able to use in court. So um, it's, it's just this beautiful irony. So he, Jesus is the stone. The builders are these leaders of Israel. He becomes the chief cornerstone, which is either the foundation stone or the capstone that goes on the top of, of a temple. Um, uh, it's one of these two things, this stone. Either way, the point is he's the center of the whole building that God is creating. And um, beautiful stuff. Now, R.T. Franz, he adds to this, that this phrase, the builders, um, in rabbinic literature, I'm quoting him now, in rabbinic literature, scribes and scholars are sometimes referred to as builders. And this may have helped some hearers to see the relevance of the quotation to Jesus' situation, increasingly rejected by the scribal establishment. So the um, scholars, the scribes, they're called builders, which are part of the group he's, he's re rebuking right now. They know this is about them, which is, which is exactly what it says in verse 12. They knew it was about them, right? They knew. They understood that he spoke the parable against them. But 
as much as they want to get get rid of him, seize him, take control, they're afraid of the crowd, and so they don't. So they don't. Now, here's a question that I have about this. Who are the others that the vineyard is given to? He's going to come and destroy the vine grower and give the vineyard to others. Well, who are they? I think the most natural you know, view is that they're the leaders of the Christian church. That the leaders of Israel become the leaders of the Christian church as far as who's going to tend the vine. And the vine is now those who are grafted in and there are those who have been cut off, but they can be regrafted. And there's a time in future when Israel will have this great national repentance. I, I do believe that's prophesied in scripture. And so this is the leaders of the Christian church. Now, some will like, and I talked about this, I think it was last week we did the stuff on um, Catholicism. Some will say, ah, see, just like the leaders of Israel. So now, and when you say the leaders of the church, they mean, oh, the papacy and the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. Because when you say church, they often are very focused on just their leadership, right? It's just us. Well, the problem with this is, again, if you parallel Jesus's um, treatment to the, these leaders, to the Catholic Church or to leaders of churches today, it doesn't give you any security, guys. It means that me as a pastor, me as a leader, or anybody, whether they have a legitimate or illegitimate position, if you're a leader in the church, of any stripe, there is great accountability for you. That's what this means. Just like God dealt with them and ended up destroying them and replacing them so you can be replaced. I think this is the sobering reality and that leaders forget to be afraid sometimes. We do because we get so comfortable. And you see it happen all the time. And pride is, it's its just, it sneaks in. It gets in your, in your heart and in your mind and into your leadership. And you start thinking that you're the judge of the church instead of God being the judge of you. And we forget that even as leaders, one day, me, Mike Winger, I've been teaching lots of content online. And if what I'm teaching is not honoring to Christ and not true biblically, I will stand before God one day and have to face that. My whole life of ministry, 20-something years of ministry since I was like 19, that, that whole life of ministry is going to be laid bare. And it's not like I'll just get this automatic well done. It's going to be examined. They thought they were great leaders. They were terrible. And they were rebelling against God. And they had replaced God's commands with their traditions. And they were blind to their own issues. And they knew that their fathers had done this, all this bad stuff, but they couldn't see any of their own problems. I could be the same way. I could be building stuff with wood, hay, and straw that will just be burned up, right? As Corinthians tells us. That, that, that there's a day when all my works will be tested. And I just, what I want to do is I want in my heart, to have the sobriety to know that just like Jesus replaced those guys, he could replace you, he could replace me. And we may see ourselves as great leaders, um, but we should see ourselves as those with great responsibility, but not overemphasize the power that we think we have. Because they overemphasize their power and underemphasize their responsibility and their accountability. And that is probably one of the plagues of leadership. We know it when we're not leaders. We know how accountable our leaders are and how much they need to stand before God. And, and you better represent the Lord. Good. You step into that pulpit. You better speak truth. You're going to stand there in the place of uh, one who's ministering in the name of Christ. You better minister as like the character of Christ in the way that you talk to people and deal with people. But we can turn into like kingdom building and it's about me and I start reacting in the flesh and I can't even tell the difference between the flesh and the spirit anymore because I'm the anointed and all this nonsense. Well, you, you know, God's going to deal with all that. James 3 tells us that not many should seek to be teachers because we will actually be judged more strictly. And just like they're judged pretty strictly because they're the leaders rejecting rejecting Christ. So I'm going to be judged strictly because things that I'm saying, people are listening to and it actually changes their lives. And it's either changing it to make them more obedient and in love with Jesus Christ or less. And I'm accountable. That is That is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing. So I think it's it's the leaders of the Christian church. I don't think this creates a papacy. I think if anything, it argues against that because the papacy is claiming a higher degree of authority and power than anything that ever existed in the leadership of Israel. That's why I would not make that parallel if I was Catholic <laughs> because I'd be like, oh no, that doesn't help. 
Okay, moving on. Verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. And, and this, again, just to return to the, the idea, this is this backhanded parable. They know it's about them. It would irk them to no end. Jesus, in this parable, he claims that he's the Son of God, that he's the ultimate messenger of God. He predicts that they're going to reject him, and that he's going to get set up as the cornerstone anyways, and they're going to be replaced. But, because he's got a lot of people following him still, and... They don't have, like, something clear they can accuse him of just yet. He'll give them something later when it's time. So they just walk away frustrated. They just walk away frustrated. And I think it's, I think it's beautiful. And the application for us is simple as we close. Humility, obedience, and leaders can be replaced. Humility, obedience, and leaders can be replaced. And will be. And I need to um, walk in the knowledge of that. And just be actually humble some guys get really good at looking humble. If you're good at looking humble, you're just good at hiding pride, right? Actually being humble. Finally, the last application, best part, this cornerstone thing. Jesus is like, you're going to you're going to beat me, kill me, crucify me, throw me out of the town, right? You're going to do all this. I'm still going to win. That's the final application. No matter what is going on in our world, whatever pains, whatever persecutions, whatever sufferings, whatever apostasies, there's lots of apostasy going on at the moment, at least, at least it rises to the social media surface at the moment. Um, all these things, though they may seem huge, they're a footnote in history, which is leading up to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you need to know that, that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone that Jesus is still King and Lord, and that is the end of the story, and that our way of processing this life should involve realizing that every sinful rebellion is temporary, and the Lordship of God is on its way. That is all. Thank you so much for joining. Um, I will, uh, I'll be, next time you'll for sure see me. We might, might have something in the week. I don't know. I've just been so busy recently, so I'm not going to promise things, but Next time for sure you'll see me is Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time or whatever time it is in California, whenever it's 1 p.m. in California, depending on what time of year you happen to be watching this video. And I hope to see you all then. Thank you for joining and we will continue the Mark series next week. Oh yeah, I want to pray with you guys first. So let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we are grateful for the um, this parable and our, our number one thing right now as we pray is the application of it into our lives, that we would be humble enough to see ourselves with the kind of clarity that we see other people. To, I mean, goodness, the, the, the comments sections online reveal that we're all pros at criticizing others and being blind to our own issues. And we just pray, help us see ourselves. Let the word of God be like a mirror that reveals the things that are going on in our own hearts, in our own lives. Help us to be humble enough to be abased with humility and repentance now so that we might have a well done then. Lord, help us to be receptive to the message that you're giving us in your word or those you send into our lives to tell us hard truths. And finally, we pray, God, give us that courage to know that the even Jesus standing in front of the people that would crucify him, he, he's, he just declares that they're going to be replaced and he's going to be the cornerstone. May we have that kind of confidence as we face the trials and the difficulties that we experience in this world to not think the world is just sliding downhill inevitably, but to think we're, we're sliding into the cornerstone, into that moment where the Lordship of Christ will be the whole story. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, take care.